Good morning. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. If you're new, maybe you're wondering, what is this church all about? Our mission statement goes like this. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, discipleship, and evangelism. Gospel-centered worship. We, we just did that. Uh, worship, gathering with the saints in the Lord's Day, is the most important thing you do all week. So worship and then discipleship. Uh, we, we believe that every Christian should be involved in a discipling relationship. That happens usually one of two ways at GCF North, our discipleship groups and our small groups. We want everyone here involved in one of those two ministries. And then finally, evangelism. We think the best way to evangelize your friends is not a program, but it's through relationships. We want you all to befriend non-Christians, pray for them, invite them into your life, and see what happens. That's what we're all about. GCF exists to glorify God through gospel-centered worship, discipleship, and evangelism. If you want to get involved, uh, talk to me afterwards, go to our website, sign up for our newsletter, and you can find out more about all those ministries. Let's pray once again before we dive into this text this morning. Uh, last week was the facts of the resurrection and this week are the implications of the resurrection from John 20. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us so many reasons to sing this morning. Father, thank you for Jesus who suffered and died for us and then rose from the grave victoriously. Father, we pray now that Christ would pour out the Spirit on us as we seek to understand and apply and cherish the word this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The Super Bowl has become a massive event with significant financial implications. Today at 3.30 p.m., 113 million people will watch the Kansas City Chiefs battle the San Francisco 49ers in Super Bowl 58. Consumers will spend a staggering $17 billion today on food and drink and other party-related items. Today, hungry fans will order 12.5 million pizzas. They will eat 88 million pounds of cheese. <laughs> they will drink 325 million gallons of beer. And they will eat 1.4 billion wings today. <laughs> wow. Corporations will spend $7 million for a 30-second commercial slot. This year, Taylor Swift's presence alone will have an estimated $300 million economic impact. There's also a negative impact. According to a Washington Post article, 17 million people will stay home from work tomorrow because of Super Bowl-related issues. I have no clue what those are. This historic event has massive implications for so many people. But... No one will fill the implications of Super Bowl 58 in 50 years. No matter who wins today, no one's going to care in 50 years. A far more significant event happened 
2,000 years ago that has implications for everyone who's ever lived. And that historic event, of course, is the resurrection of the Son of God, arguably the most significant and impactful event in the history of the world. But what are the implications of this historic event? Again, last week we talked about the facts of the resurrection. If you have questions about that, go back and watch last week's sermon. But this week we're going to look at the implications of the resurrection. And there are so many, too many for one sermon. But this particular text to John 20, um, 11 to 31, highlights a couple of those implications. What are they? Well, the resurrection bolsters faith. The resurrection fuels mission, and the resurrection, most importantly, brings life. So first, the resurrection bolsters faith. Well, whose faith? The resurrection bolstered the faith of Mary. Look with me at John 20, verse 11 to 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. That is the tomb of Jesus. He's just been crucified. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, obviously, these angels were hiding their angelic glory from her, otherwise she would have freaked out. Because everywhere else in the Bible, when angels appear, people are terrified, but clearly, they have some kind of disguise shrouding their identity. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So when Mary sees the risen Christ standing there in front of her, visibly, physically, she had no doubt. The evidence was clearly right there in front of her. Uh, his bodily resurrection bolstered her faith. She saw the evidence, and she believed right away. So, again, the resurrection bolstered Mary's faith. In addition, the resurrection bolstered Thomas's faith eventually, eventually. Look with me at John 20, 24 to 29, and this is the account of Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger to the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Now, we often criticize Thomas for lacking faith, but we often forget that people back then 
were just as skeptical of bodily resurrections as we are today. In fact, N.T. Wright, famous scholar, wrote a book, a thousand-page book on the resurrection, called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And in that book, he argues, people in the first century were no less gullible than we are. They also had significant doubts about bodily resurrections, just like we do. So Thomas wanted to see the evidence before he was willing to believe that Jesus actually rose from the grave. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. So again, at first, Thomas doubts. He wants to see the evidence. He wants to see the proof. So Jesus Christ shows up physically, bodily, and he says, Thomas, I know you doubt, but I want to prove to you that I actually rose from the grave. I want to prove to you that I died. See my wounds, put your finger in my wounds, touch me, see me, talk to me. Thomas sees all the evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. And because of the preponderance of the evidence, he joyfully exclaims, my Lord and my God. Now in that moment, Jesus does not say, Thomas, Thomas, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, you're a Jew, I am a Jew. We both know that it is blasphemy, a sin punishable by death, to think that a man is God. Please don't say to me, my Lord and my God. Is that what he said? Is that what he said? No. Jesus clearly, unequivocally, accepted, received the worship of Thomas. Thomas' words here are arguably the clearest, most decisive evidence that Jesus claimed to be God anywhere in the New Testament. Thomas says, my Lord, Yahweh, old covenant name of God, my Lord and my God. God, my God, is what he's saying to him. And Jesus does not say, stop, don't worship me, I'm just a man. Don't tell me that Jesus never claimed to be God. Clearly, right here, Thomas's words indicate that Jesus claimed to be God. Back to Thomas. Why did Thomas believe that Jesus was God? Because he literally saw the evidence standing in front of him. He saw Jesus. He saw the wounds, he touched the wounds, he saw his body, and he believed. Then verse 29 is interesting. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, what do these words mean? Jesus is not discounting evidence. He is not a fideist, someone who um, believes that faith is a blind leap. He's basically saying this, Thomas, you believe because you saw my physical body. I'm about to ascend to the Father. There's gonna be folks that come along later, like all of you in the room here today, who believe based on the evidence of the scriptures, not seeing my body up close and personal. He's not discounting evidence. 
But he's simply saying that um, I, I have chosen to show myself to you. Others will believe just on the evidence of the scriptures. Jesus very compassionately offers Thomas physical evidence. Why does he show him this evidence? Because he loves Thomas. He loves Thomas. And he wants Thomas to believe. The resurrection bolsters Thomas's faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I can easily relate to Thomas more than Mary in this story. I'm about to get real personal. So in 2013, we planted GCF North. At that point, I had been in pastoral ministry roughly 10 years, gone to seminary, had a couple of advanced degrees, studied apologetics. But for whatever reason, that year when I planted GCF North, I remember reading through the Old Testament and encountering some of the hard stories in the Old Testament about God-ordained violence and thinking to myself, wow, this is pretty intense. This is pretty harsh. God tells Joshua to go into the promised land and destroy every man, woman, and child. Wow. And that question put me on a trajectory of questions. And I began to really wrestle with my faith. Is Christianity really true? Is the Bible true? Are miracles true? What about the problem of evil? Now, I never stopped believing, but I had to really work through some thorny theological apologetics issues. And since I've shared this story in another context, many saints have said to me, I've gone through the same struggles, but I didn't tell anybody because I was afraid to tell people about my questions and my doubts. All of us are wired very differently. Some of us like Thomas, and like me, really need to see the evidence. Others just believe, and that's great. God, in his kindness in that season of my life, directed me towards some fantastic resources. And I had to really study the issues and really be convinced that the Bible is the word of God, that the problem of evil has some really good solutions, that Jesus really rose from the grave, that science does not rule out Christianity. I read probably anywhere from 10 to 15 books in about a two or three year period, wrestling through these issues. And looking back, I will clearly say um, that I am thankful for that season of my life, even though it was hard. My prayer was the prayer of the man in the Gospel of Mark who says to Jesus, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief, help my unbelief. Now was, was my doubt, was that caused by sinful unbelief? Was it Satan throwing darts of doubt at me because I was planning a church? Was it just being human? I don't know what it was, I don't know. But I went through that season. I wanted to see the evidence, just like Thomas did. And again, God in his kindness did not say, Dave, just believe. Just have blind faith and just believe. No. God directed me towards evidence, just like he did with Thomas. So I don't know where you're at right now on your faith journey. Maybe you too have significant doubts or questions. Don't keep those to yourself. 
Talk to someone, talk to me, talk to a spouse, talk to a parent. Don't go through this on your own, but use your doubt as an opportunity to strengthen your faith. John Piper has a book that he wrote when he had cancer called Don't Waste Your Cancer. What he meant by that was, see your cancer as an opportunity to grow in godliness. In a similar sense, don't waste your doubt. When you have questions and concerns, that's an opportunity for you to really grow in your faith, to be strengthened in your faith. And now I can say more than ever, I'm totally convinced that Christianity answers the most questions of all the worldviews. I said most, not all. The most questions. Doesn't answer every question. Uh, God is mysterious. His ways are not our ways. But of all the worldviews, it is the most satisfying. It provides the best explanation for the world's problems, for the human predicament. But if you're struggling, if you have doubts, talk to someone. And parents, if a child or a friend says to you, I have doubts, I have concerns, I have questions, don't panic, don't freak out. It's often normal to go through seasons of doubt. Listen to your child, listen to your friend, ask lots of questions. And don't judge people. Again, we're all wired very differently. My wife and I talk a lot about this, and we're, her, her and I are very different in how we think about Christianity and evidence. She just believes, which is great. Maybe that's you. But I needed evidence, and there is evidence. There's good evidence that Christianity is true, and the resurrection is part of that evidence, that canon of evidence. So the resurrection has a way of bolstering faith. But it does so much more, which brings us to the second heading. First, the resurrection bolsters faith. Second, the resurrection fuels mission. And this brings us to John 20, 19 to 23. These verses are often called the Johannian Great Commission. Johannian is just a big word for John. The scholars like to invent big words. The Johannian Great Commission. The Great Commission is in all four Gospels, This is John's version of the Great Commission. Let's examine it in detail. John 20, 19 and following. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now the disciples at this moment probably expected a rebuke from Jesus. They haven't seen him for a while. And some of them haven't seen them, seen Jesus since his arrest. And they all left him when he was arrested. Instead of rebuking him, he says to them, peace be with you. Why? Because God is incredibly gracious. Verse 20. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The Father sent Jesus into the world to rescue us. Now Jesus sends us into the world with a a message of reconciliation. As the Father sent Jesus, he sends us, which means that Jesus is the pattern for missions. He came into the world to rescue us, and he tells us to go into the world to rescue others through the proclamation of the gospel. But we need power, don't we, for this mission? 
Where does that power come from? Verse 22. And when he had said this, when he had given them this mission, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, much ink has been spilled on verse 22, since the other texts seem to indicate the disciples don't receive the Holy Spirit until Pentecost, 50 days later. So how do we explain this apparent discrepancy? Well, some scholars think that Christ's act of breathing on the disciples in this story is merely a symbolic foreshadowing of the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. Other scholars think that the apostles received a private infilling here and then a public empowering at Pentecost. R.C. Sproul argues that the Old Testament prophets communicated through their words and often through their actions. They would often dramatically act out what God was about to do. And he says, in this situation, Jesus is giving the disciples a dramatic object lesson of what's going to happen at Pentecost 50 days later. I, I don't know who's right here. I think Sproul's probably right. But no matter how you interpret this passage, the application is the same for all of us today because all of us live post-Pentecost. All of us live as citizens of the new covenant, and all of us have incredible access to dramatic resurrection power. How? Jesus died. Jesus rose from the grave. He ascends to his Father, and from that place of power and authority, he pours out the Spirit on the church for a variety of reasons, and one of those reasons is supernatural boldness and power for new covenant ministry. He has not left us on our own. It's impossible for us to fulfill this mission in our own strength. I've tried, you've probably tried, and we've all failed. But Christ has given us supernatural power, the same power that raised him from the dead. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us as a result of the resurrection. And now we have the ability to be bold and confident in proclaiming the gospel. But what is the nature of this mission? Let's keep reading another difficult text. Verse 23, Jesus says, after he gives them the Spirit, or promises them the Spirit, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does this cryptic phrase mean? Several scholars point out that the phrase Phrases, they are forgiven and it is withheld, are perfect tense verbs in the Greek. It could also be translated, they have been forgiven or it has been withheld. One scholar writes this about these difficult verses. The idea is not that individual Christians or churches have authority on their own to forgive or not forgive people. Rather, as the church proclaims the gospel message of forgiveness of sins, in the power of the Holy Spirit, it simply reflects what God in heaven has already done. What is the point? Our mission is clear. The risen and reigning Christ has poured out the Spirit into our hearts, giving us supernatural power for boldness in evangelism. Isn't that good news? I don't know about you, but I often cower in fear when I have chances to share the gospel with others. But I know that in those moments when I say, Lord, I'm afraid, they may not like me, they may reject me, Lord, give me power, help me open my mouth. You know what happens, amazingly? 
and God gives me power, and my mouth is opened. God has promised us supernatural power to fulfill this incredible mission. The resurrection fuels the mission. In 1858, one of my heroes, John Patton, sailed for the New Hebrides Islands to preach the gospel to cannibals, the same cannibals that about 20 years earlier killed and ate several missionaries a few minutes after landing on the island. When Mr. Dixon heard that Patton was going to be going to the cannibals, he said, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there too to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Once he arrived on the island, he was in constant danger. He writes this, our continuous danger caused me oftentimes to sleep with my clothes on that I might flee at a moment's warning. Again, he writes, my enemies seldom slacken their hateful designs against my life. A wild chief followed me around for four hours with his loaded musket, and though often directed toward me, God restrained his hand. Again, he writes, one morning at daybreak, I found my house surrounded by armed men, and a chief intimated that they had assembled to take my life, and then probably eat his body. Once more, he writes, once when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his ax, but a tribal chief snatched a spade with which I had been working and dexterously defended me from instant death. Patton and his wife preached the gospel boldly for 40 years in this environment. And literally thousands of cannibals were saved. Now, when you hear the story, you think, there's no way that I could ever be as brave or as bold as John Patton. That's a lie from the devil. All of us, because of the resurrection, have been given supernatural boldness. The resurrection fuels the mission. Because Christ rose from the grave, you and I are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, giving us supernatural power to tell our friends about the free and full forgiveness of sins found in Jesus Christ. Which raises the question, who has God placed in your life recently? What coworker, neighbor, friend, relative, barista, friend of the gym needs to hear the gospel? And I know that, like you, so often I think, how am I going to bring this up? What am I going to say? How are they going to respond when I bring up the gospel? In those moments, we must cry out to God in secret prayer and say, God, help me. <laughs> Give me boldness in this moment to open my mouth and talk about you. 
Help me, fill me, empower me. And again, it's impossible for us to fulfill this mission in our own strength. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have close, non-Christian friends? I hope the answer is most of you. If you don't, it's gonna be hard for you to have opportunities to share the gospel with non-Christians. Part of being a Christian is finding ways to be with, to love, and to serve non-Christians. Jesus was the friend of sinners. So you gotta find ways to be with them, whether it's, again, through a club membership, athletic club, not the club, but the athletic club, your place of employment, your coffee shop, I don't know what it is, but God calls us to be on mission, which means we have to talk to non-Christians. We have to be their friends and then pray for opportunities, and when God gives us opportunities, we speak up with boldness. The resurrection fuels the mission, but it does even more, bringing us to the last heading. The resurrection bolsters faith, the resurrection fuels the mission, and the resurrection, most importantly, brings life. It brings life, all kinds of life. John 20, verse 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now these verses, as many of you know, are the thesis of John's gospel. They describe for us why John wrote this book in the first place. And John wrote this gospel to display the signs of Jesus. He wanted to give his readers evidence signs that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God and the eternal Messiah. John was not a fideist. He believed in the importance of evidence. This whole book was written to give us evidence, to give us signs. What were the primary signs of Christ's uh, Messiahship in John's gospel? Well, there's eight key signs. Jesus changed water into wine. John chapter two, he healed the, the official son, John four, he healed a disabled man at the pool, John five, he fed the 5,000, John six, he walked on water, John six, he healed a man born blind, John nine, he raised Lazarus from the dead, John 11, and most importantly, he raised himself from the dead. The ultimate sign that Jesus is in fact the divine son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who can reconcile us to God Almighty. John cares deeply about the evidence. He wants us to believe. Why? Because when we believe, we experience life. Look with me at John 20, 31. But these are written, these signs, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing, you may have life in his name. And this life, as you know, if you've been here for a while in the John series, is eternal life, which describes duration and quality. Eternal life 
is wonderful because it's rooted in knowing the triune God. Not knowing about God, but actually knowing him. Having a relationship with him through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. That, my friends, is the greatest source of life. There is no greater source of joy, life, peace, satisfaction, or happiness anywhere in the cosmos. Life, eternal life, resurrection life, is found in Jesus. There's no greater rock to be anchored to when life blows you off course. Now, why don't we experience this type of life most of the time? Because we look to the wrong things to satisfy us. C.S. Lewis famously wrote, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The Gospel of John was written to help us understand that there is a far greater source of pleasure and joy and life than all the mud pies that we look to. And those mud pies will never satisfy us. The mud pies of stuff, acquiring more stuff, earning advanced degrees, having the perfect grandkids, having the perfect body, having the perfect health, the perfect marriage, a pay raise, political freedom, successful children, playing that endless round of golf and the retirement years. All those things, as we know so well, don't we? never ultimately satisfy. They satisfy for a moment, but they don't provide the eternal life that is only found in relationship with God. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. After winning three Super Bowls and acquiring all the wealth and fame and success that goes with it, quarterback Tom Brady famously said these words. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reach my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it, I'm 27. And what else is there for me? This is Tom Brady, who everyone wants to be, who's worth millions, who has all the fame and notoriety and success, although now he's divorced. But he has the American dream, and he's saying it's not where it's at. It does not fulfill or satisfy, but we still think that it does, don't we? Deep down inside, we think if I could just make a little more money, have a little more vacation, then... I'll experience life. 
we all know that all these things are fleeting, yet we continue to believe the lie of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that life is found outside of Jesus. Which raises the question, have you been looking for life in the wrong places? And if you have, all you have to do is repent and believe. Repent and believe, repeat. Repent and believe, which looks like this. God, forgive me for looking to whatever, fill in the blank, for my joy and satisfaction. Forgive me, God, for making an idol out of fill in the blank. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive me. And Father, thank you that Jesus died on the cross to forgive idolaters like me. God, I receive that forgiveness. I receive that grace. And Lord, please change my heart and help me believe what I believe about the gospel. That's the Christian life. Repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. Well, what'll happen if Brock Purdy, the quarterback of the 49ers, wins today? It will greatly impact his life. He'll become a world champion. He'll no no longer be criticized as merely a game manager. He'll get a bonus check for $164,000. And companies will line up to offer him endorsement deals. If he wins, his life will be greatly impacted. But no one will remember Brock Purdy in 50 years. Sorry, San Francisco fans. No one will remember this game in 50 years. Maybe a few people. But most folks will have forgotten what happened in Super Bowl 58, 50 years from now. This historic event really means nothing in the grand scheme of things. But an event happened 2,000 years ago that has implications for all of human history. That event is the resurrection of the Son of God. And what are the ongoing implications of that historic event? Because of the resurrection, Our faith can be bolstered, we can have fuel for mission, and we can experience life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to suffer and die for us. And we thank you that he didn't just do that, but then he rose from the grave victoriously. And as a result, our lives will be forever changed. Father, we pray that this week you would strengthen our faith. Father, we pray this week that you would send us out on mission, help us to be bold and courageous. And Father, we pray that this week we would look to you, the triune God, for life, joy, and peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.